0: Welcome to this edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series. We recently spent some quality time with jazz saxophonist, composer, arranger, and big band leader Bob Mincer, discussing a wide array of topics pertaining to a long career that has been going strong since the 1970s. He is a force in jazz, and he discussed his cool years with the Yellow Jackets, how jazz matters these days, great stories from the road, the effect he has had on his fans and the effect they've had on him along with a whole lot more dig it my friends thank you very much for taking some time out today to talk with us we really appreciate it my pleasure happy to do so let me go ahead and jump right in here how is your latest album for the moment doing
1: uh you mean the eight copies that it sold <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I don't know any jazz enthusiast that cannot get enough of the big bands, so it, it's a great album. I really enjoy it myself. Thank uh, you. So, let's go back to the alpha of your life here, and New Rochelle, New York. What was the jazz scene like there when you were growing up? <laughs> what jazz scene? <laughs> uh, the, the, you know, I mean, uh, the, for me, the jazz scene was playing, uh,
1: you know, saxo- a bar of saxophone in the... Uh, school jazz bands, you know, that's just, but that said, uh, New Rochelle was right next to New York City. It was just a 20 minute train ride. So when I was 14, I was already going into Manhattan to, to clubs to hear live jazz. So that was incredible. It was an incredible experience. I heard Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and Sonny Rollins and Herbie Hancock and Sonny Stitt and Dexter Gordon and everybody.
0: That had to be mind blowing at that time.
1: It was great. It was really inspiring and uh, informational. Or, you know, to to sit up close and watch these guys play and do do their work was uh, invaluable.
0: Absolutely. So, in the beginning of your life, why did you choose the saxophone?
1: <laughs> well, I, I didn't actually choose the saxophone at the beginning. I, I first played uh, guitar and piano. And then clarinet. And uh, I, honestly, I wanted to play every instrument. I just loved music. And, uh, the, you know, I, I really enjoyed the challenge of conquering a new instrument. So, um, saxophone just kind of showed up because there was an opportunity to play in the school jazz band. And, uh, I, like I said, I borrowed a saxophone and played a little. And then my folks rented me a saxophone, I think. And, uh, you know, I. I As I listened to more and more jazz music, I started to gravitate towards the tenor saxophone, just, I think, because of the range and the sound and all the great tenor saxophones that I had the opportunity to hear.
0: Absolutely. So, what was it that made you decide that music was your calling in life? Oh, uh, I don't know.
1: I didn't know what else to do, quite frankly. And uh, I had a very keen interest in how music worked. or saxophone, just trying to to decipher things, perhaps, that I had heard on recordings or on the television or radio, and, you know, experiment and shuffle things around and make up things, and, you know, in in essence, I was starting to compose and, you know, create a foundation for improvising. I
0: didn't know it. Yeah, absolutely. So, in your education years, Jackie McLean, what did he teach you at the College of Music in Hartford?
1: Jackie McLean, he had just started his jazz program there. This was 1970. And I actually was a clarinet major at that school, so I spent a good deal of time practicing the clarinet. Uh, I was also playing a lot of piano. I was practicing flute and saxophone. Um, So I was doing... I was learning music in general, all different kinds of music. And Jackie was a great mentor, just you know, a role model, he was there. Uh, he had, of course, you know, this incredible legacy of material. He had uh, recorded and played with everybody. He taught this great history course at school that I took that was just remarkable. It's, you know, it's remarkable when somebody tells you about facts and they're in the history. They were there. You know, that really adds some, some weight and relevance to what the person's teaching. And so basically, you know, I didn't really study privately with Jackie, but I just watched him followed him around and heard him play and, and listened to him talk and it was a real
0: right on what was your first jazz experience life kind of your first real go at it on the stage how did you feel what were you thinking
1: you mean professionally yes um gosh well let's see I, I, I got out of Manhattan School of Music spring of 1974 and immediately got a call to work with a Brazilian piano player named Jair Diodato who had a hit record on CTI at the time he took the South, South, music, and you know, funk it up, and uh, was you know, actually a, a really accomplished arranger, and you know, very good musician, and he had this band, and uh, I got a call to play with that band. My first gig, I think it was like a few days after school ended, was in Carnegie Hall with Teodato. wow, and uh, I was I was pretty terrified, you know, I mean, I had <laughs> never. of this guy in the band, but it was exciting at the same time, and you know, I don't know if that per se was a jazz experience, but there was some improvising that happened, and you know, I played the four horn section, and it was great music, you know, so from there I went on to the Tito Puente Orchestra, and that was a a good deal of improvising, and also the whole, you know, Afro-Cuban. And from there, I went to the Buddy Rich band, and that was every night for two and a half years. And that was that was grad school, you know, jazz wise.
0: Yeah. Uh, Great. You know, there's, there's all these academic terms. I'm the chair of a jazz program
1: at UCLA, so you know, it, it, which is kind of crazy to me. But you know, I'm sort of it's a little bit of street meets academia, you know. So I'm learning an awful lot, of sort of in between these two worlds, and, and I think they do work together. But uh, I've, I've had an amazing run. I got to say, I mean, this, this is my 40th year playing.
0: Absolutely. Well, I love the metaphor of the education merging with that. It it, it weaves together a good visual. So, it uh, it totally makes sense. So to be on stage with someone like Tito and Buddy for that long in those formative years, what what did they teach you? Not only just about jazz, but about life. Oh well, you know, I watched
1: them very carefully, and I listened, you know, carefully to what was going on, and they were. Number one, they were showmen. They were fantastic, well-rounded musicians. Uh, they were prompt. You know, they conducted their business very efficiently and professionally. Um, and they really provided a sense of direction to the music and to the musicians, which you know, as a family, leader, is critical. You, you know, you're driving the ship. You're the driver. You need to really have some sense of Doing this, um, you know, and I also learned how not to act. You know, Tito mean, <laughs> and Buddy both—they were prone to, you know, kind of freaking out at times. Um, and you know, that was a good lesson. You know, uh, I, I, I try to not do—I don't do that, quite honestly, as a band leader. I mean, uh, but it was all good. It was just an, an incredible
0: education and a great. Right on. So you've you've, wrote, you've written for and gigged with Art Blakey. What was that experience like? Well, uh, I,
1: I went and sat in with Art's band at the Vanguard on a Sunday night and uh, which was the custom back in the 70s and he, he liked what he heard and he asked if I had some uh, material because he was getting ready to record I brought a few tunes by rehearsal and uh, wound up playing with the band at the Village Gate for a week. He, he kind of informally asked me to join the band. I was still with Buddy Rich and getting ready to record some of the first big band music I had ever written, so I, I, I wasn't quite ready to uh, jump ship with Buddy and move over to Art, and I told him so. And he uh, he moved on. He hired somebody else. But I got to write a couple of tunes that were recorded on an album called Gypsy Folk Tales, and... Uh, I learned a lot from that experience, just playing with Art and again watching him and feeling that sensation of playing with such a great drummer, you know, and again, a very powerful band leader who had a really strong sense of direction and could, could, you know, mentor young players, so it was a terrific experience.
0: So you've had some crossover work with other musicians like Diana Ross, Steve Steve Winwood, James Taylor. What, in Queen, what are those experiences like, getting out of the jazz realm and getting more into kind of bands and singers like that?
1: Well, I I was doing some session work in New York in the 80s and into the 90s, and, and, you know, during those years, quite a few records were being made, so... Yeah. And Aretha Franklin and Lou Rawls and the Spinners and some really, really wonderful
0: projects. Right on. Yeah. So the Yellow Jackets, talk to me about those years. What was that like when you sit back and think about that time period, what really comes to mind?
1: The Yellow Jackets, I mean, it's my family, you know, I've been in the band 24 years, uh, a great group of people. Um, I joined the band in 1990. It was a very kind of gradual process, they called me. I was in New York, you know, fairly busy. I had my own projects going on and doing a bunch of freelance work and writing a lot. And um, they uh, invited me to play on a CD we did called Greenhouse out in LA. And uh, it was just a very uh, inspired experience, very interesting, great guys. And, uh, you know, we started playing some gigs and. After I think two or three years I, I sort of moved from guest status to band partner status and that was 24 years ago and um, it's just something really great about being in an ensemble particularly like this one where there's a, a very high level of empathy and camaraderie and teamwork and it's just a fantastic conversation every time we get together and play and um, I, I, I love it. It's, it's one of my, if not my most favorite musical experience that
0: I've involved with. Right on. So you write quite a bit for a number of outfits. What's your favorite way to write for big bands, small band, quartets, concert band music? What do you like doing the best? Uh,
1: I like it all, and it's fun. You know, variety is fun. I just finished a solo soprano saxophone piece for a former a student from the Manhattan School of Music, who's a hotshot classical soprano, saxophone soloist who travels the world, and uh, I've been promising him a piece, so I, I wrote something for him. Uh, I just finished doing a new big band record of you know arrangements of R&B tunes from the 60s, and that was really fun. Before that, I worked with the WDR in Cologne and did a project called Songs from the 40s with vocalists and uh, you know some of the great American songbook standards. Um, I arranged for, for vocalists. In fact, we're going to we're going to Japan with my band and the New York Voices, and so we're going to do some of that material, so that should be fun.
0: Right on. So it's always something there. You know, I've you know, some, done some orchestral writing, not a
1: lot, but I, I like to try to think of ways to incorporate what I do on the saxophone into an orchestral setting. You know, perhaps maybe with a rhythm section and strings and orchestral winds and percussion. There's, there's you know, a lot of... Lot of interesting things. I mean, for me, writing primarily is about providing an environment in which I'm, I can play or somebody I know can play. Sure. And in fact, I, I think, you know, Duke Ellington was really the prime example of that approach to writing, where he was able to write for the specific members in his band in, in such a poignant, you know, profound way. He knew what they sounded like, and uh, you know, wrote
0: this very personal, uh, interesting music as a, the result. Absolutely. So, as a teacher at Southern Cal, what do you try to teach your kids? What's What's the thing you want them to really take away from your role as a teacher?
1: Um, I try to try to inspire them. I, you know, I'll give them some information to work on, but basically, what I'm telling them is. The beginning when you uh, leave school, you you know the, the the hard work begins. You, you really it never ends. I mean, it's it's an ongoing process in terms of uh, learning new information, uh, learning how to integrate it into what you do, um, learning you know how to keep learning basically and grow and keep growing. Um, a, a big portion of that is being an instigator. You know, being a composer and arranger, a producer. Uh, a band leader, you know, um, I also try to instill in them the importance of how one carries oneself in terms of being successful in anything they do. You know, if somebody has a positive attitude, um, uh, you know, is, is a member of the team, um, is, is empathetic, is punctual, is, you know, To begin with.
0: Absolutely. What's the greatest thing about waking up every day?
1: Um, for me, the greatest thing is number one. I get to I get to play music. I get to try new things. I you know I get to let my mind run wild and dream up sort of new situations and new ideas. And it really spills over into life in general. I, you know I get to try things. I get to. Try different ways to eat, different ways to take care of myself, different ways to experience the world. Um, I'm always curious to see what's happening in the world, and you know, try to sort of figure out how to respond to it, how to interact with it, and uh, and to be okay in the world, and really be the best person I can be. And that's that's well, that's a lot. That's you know, that's incredible. Um, you know, I think a big part of you know, what, what people aspire to do is to, to replace whatever negativity might be there with some level of positive thinking and, you know, just this optimistic outlook where, guess things are challenging in life, but we move through them and, you know, it could be sort of a joyous thing to get through a challenge uh, rather than, you know, a big downer. so. A lot, a, lot to, a lot to do every day and a lot to be thankful for you know, I, I, I generally
0: uh, when I get up I, I, I try to remember all that and you know, start my day well said, well said so of all the folks you performed with we have went through Tito and Buddy and Thad and Art Blakey and Bobby McFerrin and all these folks who is it that you still want to perform with that you have not performed with?
1: Hancock back in August. And that was somebody I really wanted to play with. I had you know, been on some recordings that he was on, but we hadn't really played in a live setting before. Um, so that was, you know, that was one down that I had always aspired to play with. Um, you know, I've played with a lot of great people, and uh, I'm okay. Right on. <laughs> a lot of- But, um, you know, I'm playing with the people I always wanted to play with. And I, uh, I, I maybe didn't even know I wanted to play with them, but I mean, playing with the Yellow Jackets three to four months out of the year, it, it just doesn't get much better than that, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh,
1: when I when I put a big band project together, you know, playing with Peter Erskine and John Riley or Will Kennedy, Players like Phil Markowitz or Esperante. Um, they they may, may not be the most famous musicians out there, but, but to me, they're the best. Yeah. And uh, particularly for what I do. And so I feel very fortunate to uh, be playing
0: with the best people I, I could possibly be playing with. Right on. So your your base is the fans that you entertain, whether you meet them in person or uh, you know they listen to your music. What is the nicest thing that any of those fans have ever said to you?
1: It's just nice in general if your music reaches people and affects them in some sort of positive or you know even provocative way. If you're you know, if you're if you're touching people with your music and they're they're reacting to it. That's a gift. That's an incredible gift. And, you know, it's it's always interesting to hear people's reactions, responses to what you're playing, and, and you know, to engage in conversation with these folks. It's, it's just very affirming and, and nice to know that, that uh, the music is connecting with others.
0: Cool. So of all the albums you've been a part of, from Lips to Departure to Gently, all the way down the line, is there a particular album you think, man, that was that was something else, like, there, it really jumps out in your mind.
1: Oh, really, I mean, I, I, I'm proud of all of them, um, I, I don't, as a rule, list, go back and listen to these old records, but, you know, on occasion I might have to send a, an mp3 to somebody that's going to perform one of these songs, and, uh, you know, I'll listen to it for a few moments and think, wow, that critical and uh, you know to be in a, a, a really great position one must pay a good deal of attention to detail. So, you know, you hear all the nuance and all the little flaws in your playing when you listen to it, at least I do. Yeah. And I, I, I generally think
0: Right on. So, do you have a really good jazz story that's safe to play on radio? A good
1: jazz story? Yeah. Uh, I have thousands on the street, on radio. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's so many Buddy Rich stories. I mean, he was such a character. He was just hilarious at times. <laughs> uh, he... He, he had a great sense of humor. You know, it was certainly, you know, from the Don Rickle school where you would get up in your face and it, could, it was somewhat abrasive, but it was also very clever and he was very smart. He had a photographic memory. He didn't read music, so he would memorize a, a, a new piece of music immediately and, you know, just play through it once and then he'd know it forever. He knew every rhythm, every bit of information about the form, about... The whole thing, the arrangement—he was just so musically astute that he could do all these things. And uh, anyway, you know, just a couple of, couple of little moments. We—I uh, remember, uh, we playing in a club, and this, uh, this woman was, we were in New York, and this woman was heckling Buddy. And, uh, this tap dancer, Baby Lawrence, was in the audience, and this woman was had this sort of a. Let Baby Lawrence tap dance! Come on, let him get up and tap dance! Bunny, without a moment's hesitation, looked over her and said, uh, Why don't you stick out your tongue and let him dance on that? <laughs> and then, another. you know, there was another...
0: That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. So let me let me ask you this. Has jazz made the world a better place? I think so, yeah. I think I think jazz and
1: music in general makes the world a better place. It's uh, it's it can be joyous, it can be kind of a connective tissue between cultures. I mean uh, boy, I travel the world it's frequently I play with people that don't Sure. Short time, so, yes, absolutely.
0: Right on. Let me let me ask you this. Have you ever been to Kansas City to play? Oh, yeah, numerous times. We used to play at the, the Emporium. Uh, the Yellow Jackets played there for 20 years. Wow. You know, the yeah, the Grand Emporium.
1: Grand Emporium,
0: right, right. Great place. We played, the, we played the KC Jazz Festival numerous times as well. Right on. Um, What's left to accomplish for you? You have a legendary career spanning 40 years. So many things have happened. What is left for you to accomplish?
1: Well, I I, want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to uh, help people. I want to, you know, show people things. I want to be supportive of people. I want to be the best person I can be. I want to, you know, be of service to other people. You know, help them any way I can. Uh, I want to use my prominence in some sort of positive light, where you know I can impart uh, positive messages that that perhaps help young people or you know help the world in some kind of way. I mean, you know, we need to we need to pitch in and help one another. So that's that's a big part of of what I do. You know, and and I want to you know learn and keep expanding and growing, and so that. You know, when I get to the uh, final chapter, you know, I can look back and go, man, I've had a nice little run here, and
0: it's all good. Bob, hey, it was a huge pleasure to talk with you. I love your music, and thanks again for your time.
1: Thanks, Joe, and all the best to you, and good luck with all your endeavors, and uh, hopefully we will run into you one of these
0: days. I'd love to, man. Take it easy bye Thanks for listening and tuning into a special Neon Jazz interview session where we give you a bit of insight into the legends that have given us all that jazz. And thanks to the great Bob Menzer for his honesty and time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.